We started our series in 1 Peter two weeks ago. One of the great benefits of expository preaching is that in one respect, they're really, they're not standalone messages, although they are standalone messages. They're not standalone because, because they build and, and you see and you, you are able to, to join in with the writer who is making this, this biblical case for uh, the certain issues going on and the reason he wrote the letter, the, the intent of his letter. And, and, and we are certainly trying to bridge that gap. But one of the, uh, from when he wrote it to our time and, and day, but, but when he wrote that letter, um, he didn't just write snippets. He's not writing, you know, bits of, of, of news moments and, and you're getting just separate little thoughts. No, no, it, it's, it's a building of, of thought that this author has. And so, if you miss a Sunday, let me appeal to you and ask you to make it um, a commitment, make a commitment to listening to the messages that you miss so that when you listen to the next week's message, when you are here, you're able to connect what happened the prior weeks or week that you missed. And so, so expository preaching builds and, and I want you to be able to, to feel the full effect of Peter's words and Peter's ideas, his thoughts, his, his heart. Um, so, um, and not just Peter, but whatever book of the Bible we study. And so, um, please, if you've missed some messages, go back, uh, recap, and, and, and learn. Now, if you would, turn with me to First Peter. <laughs> And this morning, we are in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We are continuing our series in this first century letter that is encouraging followers of Christ to remain faithful in a world that is hostile to them. Peter is a man well acquainted with suffering For following Christ, the hostility he endured initially led him to his greatest failure in life when he renounced knowing Jesus Christ. But he is a man who understands weakness. He's a man who understands condemnation, his own self-condemnation. He's a man who understands pain. He's a man who understands conviction. And he's a man who understands forgiveness and the grace of God. And he writes with a deep compassion and an understanding to the believers, particularly of Asia Minor, who he is writing to, modern-day Turkey, who themselves are facing a growing hostility to their faith. Um, see, he, he is a man who, who went from renouncing Christ to joyfully suffering for Christ. That's who this man is. That's who we are studying this morning. And look with me in verse 6 of chapter 1. And follow along with me. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, Father, we are grateful that the same Spirit that inspired Peter to write these words is present with us this morning to help us understand these words. And that is our prayer, Lord, that, that in your great kindness and goodness and your desire to continually sanctify and transform your children, that you would through the working of your spirit, bring insight and bring faith and bring hope that we might become more like Christ. Lord, we ask that that as we even talk about glory, we glorify your name. And Lord, in the midst of this world that we face where we suffer, may we, may we, understand and accept the truth of joy in suffering for your namesake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Peter's letter is, is one of significant, significant encouragement to every, every believer, both the believers of Asia Minor and us today, because it's truth it truth spans the gap from the first century to the 21st century. Listen, when Peter wrote this letter, he was writing to a pre-Christian world. It was, it was, Christianity was, was new, was, was just brand new. It was a pre-Christian world, but, but God's word is timeless. And, and this letter is now addressing us in a post-Christian world world. And the same, the, the hostilities that were experienced by these people in, in First Peter, by the folks, the churches, the, the Christians in Asia Minor, they, they are hostilities, they are sufferings that we are experiencing as well. It is a world where there is much hostility and a growing hostility in our workplaces, in our families, and in our neighborhoods. We are, we are pressured to, to keep silent about our faith. There are demands placed upon us in our workplaces to agree with with immoral cultural norms that are culturally normal today. Uh, some of you might have employers who who would withhold promotions from you if you outwardly stood for Christ, or might even fire you for your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes he writes to inspire believers to to joyfully endure suffering for the purpose of living holy lives that witness to a hostile world, a, a world that does not want that witness, a world that does not have any interest in the glory of God, a world that denies the glory of God. But Peter writes to say, listen, here are the themes of my letter. The themes of his letter primarily are, are about joy in suffering and holiness, suffering and holiness. And Peter, Peter writes to these, to these dear believers that, that the hostility that you are facing, it's, 
it's expected. It's what comes with following after Christ. Um, Christians suffer because that is something that's simply logical, a logical result of, of conversion. It's predictable because following God entails something that we were doing. It entails abandoning the gods of this world. Devin read that you can't serve two masters, God and, and money. When we abandon the gods of this world, we will suffer. I mean, these believers were abandoning, claiming Caesar as Lord, and they suffered for their faith. So, you know, today, today our Christian morality, our, our faith and the life that we live in following after Christ, our obedience to, to the, the commands of Christ, they, they clash greatly with our pagan culture. So, so when we suffer, it it should be of no surprise. And Peter, Peter writes in, in chapter 4, he said, you know, you, you've been surprised by these fiery trials. They should not surprise you. And they should not surprise us, although they do at times. Now, in the face of our trials and in the face of the hostility we face for following Christ, Peter, Peter writes to remind us of who God is. That's, that's what he's writing about. He writes to remind us of who God is and the strength that we find in knowing Christ and the hope that we have because we are in Christ and the grace that we have to endure the suffering for Christ. And he powerfully proclaims this truth by reminding us from verse 1 of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, God's electing grace in our lives of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. There, there is this, this overview of the, the gospel right there. But he doesn't stop. Peter doesn't stop. He goes on in, in verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here is this, this glorious gospel, this, this truth that you've been born again You've been born again to a living hope and that living hope brings an inheritance to you in Christ and that inheritance is imperishable. That inheritance is undefiled. That inheritance is un unfading and it's being kept in heaven for you by God. And not only that, but in your exercise of faith towards God for these things, Peter writes, God, God guards you. He protects you. He guards your salvation. He guards your eternal. He guards your eternal home. He guards you. And then in verse 6, 
Peter writes, in this you rejoice. In what? What is this? This is everything Peter just said. In this you rejoice. Yes, you rejoice. You rejoice in your salvation. You rejoice. His, his, letter, his letter tells us that the gospel, the, the work of, of Christ saving men and women, give us hope. This, this new life that we have has, has been designed precisely for us to live in this kind of hostile world. God, God in his wisdom and in his purposes and his plan has saved us at this time to be in this hostile world. It's not an accident. It's the plan of God. And the hostility that, that these first century Christians faced and the hostility we face, as, as serious as it is, you know, aggressively those who are trying to silence us um, or intimidate us through, through accusations of being homophobic or racist or misogynist or xenophobic or hateful, on and on and on, they... They label us to make us outcasts. Um, they, they hate us. They, they throw scathing condemnations at us. And yet in this environment, God has placed us. God has placed us right here. And he's placed us to, to display the glory of God. Particularly in the midst of suffering for following Christ. As we live obediently and as we boldly share with people about the amazing grace of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter, Peter leads us. He leads us to this understanding. He leads us to this place where he explains suffering. He leads us there by first lifting up our eyes upwards towards towards Christ towards what Jesus has done towards his gospel this this letter isn't doesn't begin with sympathy it doesn't begin with with comfort but it begins with a hope filled faith riveted in in the gospel riveted in this truth of what God has done for you our our gospel is is not just the power of God for salvation, but also the power of God to keep us no matter what we're facing. And that's what Peter is doing. It is a power that enables us to serve him, to stand for him, to, to follow him in the midst of a hostile, hostile world. Listen, we have, we have a living hope. Peter tells us we have a living hope because Jesus' saving grace brings us stability in an unstable world. We have an inheritance that is, that is kept by God. It's guarded by God. And, and in love, in love, God has, has brought us to himself. And, and you know, we, often, we often talk about, oh, the cost that Jesus paid for our, our sins and, and, and bringing us to faith in, in God. And, and that is true, but, but it's not just about Jesus. Peter starts with, with the Trinity here. He talks about the foreknowledge of God, the Father. He talks about the sanctifying and sustaining work of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the shed blood of Christ for our salvation. He says, listen, the Trinity, it took the Trinity to save just one sinner. But eager they were to do that. 
eager they were. And, and so Peter, Peter says, look, there, there, is, there is suffering in this world. You will suffer for following me, but let me, let me lay this foundation of hope and truth and faith and love that, I, that God has for you in Christ. Listen, no matter what we face in a world such as ours, what stands above all the hostility and suffering for Christ is this the truth that we are we are united to Christ in 1965 my dad was working for NASA who was the Gemini space program at the time Apollo had not started yet um, Ed White was the first American to walk in space two men went up in a Gemini capsule uh, Ed White and Wally Shara Shara and uh, Wally Shara was the command pilot, and so he stayed in the capsule. Ed White was the first American to, to do a spacewalk. Um, the Russians had already done a spacewalk. Ed White um, did a spacewalk. The, you know, the Americans didn't know how it went with the Russians, other than the, the, the Russian did live. Um, Ed White gets out there. He's attached to a tether. It's an umbilical cord. It, it, it obviously gave him oxygen and kept him uh, tethered to the Gemini capsule. But what he discovered when he got out there, when he discovered when he was, he was trying to, to walk in space, was that he absolutely had no control in, in the environment he was in. And so he was just literally bouncing around, bouncing around so much and expending so much effort to try and do the task that they had asked him to do outside the capsule that he became exhausted. And, and space con- the control said that, that um, if, if something went wrong, Wally Shara was supposed to cut Ed White loose so at least one of them would live. Well, Sherrard doesn't do that. He, he does not leave a man behind. And he eventually helps Ed White pull back into the capsule. NASA learned something that day. And so on the next Gemini launch and the next capsule that went up, they had welded handholds to the outside of the capsule so that Ed White or the next man walking could have stability. Peter tells us that we are just not floating out there in space without anything to hold on to. We are anchored to Christ. We are united to Christ. We are anchored to the gospel. We are being held on to by Christ when we can't grab that handhold. We, we have this living hope. We have this anchor who will never let us go. And so that is, that is Peter's main idea for us in the midst of suffering. You are, you are held on. You are tethered. You are tethered to Christ in the midst of your suffering. It is the gospel. So what is, what is Peter telling us in these four verses? What, what he's telling us is the gospel brings and sustains joy in those who obediently follow Christ. Regardless of their circumstances, the gospel brings and sustains joy in those who obediently follow Christ. Regardless of your circumstances. The idea is that the sufferings that we experience are not a result of fate or impersonal forces of nature. Our sufferings are actually 
God's will for us. In, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, in verse 19, Peter, Peter writes this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what we're called to. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The New Testament regularly, regularly sees suffering as the road that all of us must travel as we enter into God's kingdom. Acts 14.22. Luke writes this in Acts 14. I'll start in 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then in in Romans 5, Paul writes in verses 3 through 5, he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Peter, Peter is in these first, in these six or four verses, six through nine, he says, in this, this great salvation, you, you rejoice though now for a little while and, and a little while is not defined by Peter. A little while is not defined. It just simply could mean the rest of our lives though for a little while, which is these momentary light afflictions, though for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Rejoice. See, in this you greatly rejoice. You rejoice. You rejoice in the gospel that sustains you in suffering. In 1976... I came to faith in Christ. A month later, I was invited to this thing called Jesus 76. Jesus 76 was a festival similar to the rock festivals I used to go to. Um, but this was 40,000 Christians gathered on a farm in, in upstate Pennsylvania who, who were camping in this farm. And I had been invited to go. I was a Christian all of a month. I had gotten off of work at midnight. And so I drove past north of Pittsburgh, basically God arriving at around six o'clock in the morning, exhausted and not knowing where my friends are in the midst of 40,000 people. And as I go to use one of the many thousands of porta potties standing in line at this, this, this field in Pennsylvania, I actually run into somebody that I knew who took me. And I remember all I could do was just lay down on the ground and fall asleep. I was exhausted. And I slept for about, I was probably asleep for about 30 minutes when all of a sudden this, this man, this preacher, a guy named Pat Robertson, gets up and he gets on the microphone. And he goes, rejoice! <laughs> this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And I just like, this is, this, this is, this is not what I want. I do not want to rejoice. I want to sleep. But those words stuck with me. What I learned that first month as a believer in Christ is that joy is the hallmark of my new life. 
That joy is the hallmark. That, that this is who we are. We are joyful people. And why? Why wouldn't we be? It's, it's not about being happy. Joy, joy is not about happiness, about happiness. Happiness is rooted in the subjective. Joy is anchored in objective truth, the gospel of Christ. And it's our way of life regardless of our circumstances. And that's what Peter is telling us. In this you greatly rejoice. In this, in this wonderful gospel, though now in the midst of this rejoicing, for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials. So three points that Peter is trying to make encourage us in three ways. The first is that we have joy in trials because God has saved us. In this you rejoice. What do you see? What do you see when you face trials? When you are suffering for your faith in Christ? When you have neighbors who disdain your your faith in Christ, or you're in the midst of, you're, you're hanging out at the, you know, your kids swim at, at the, on the swim team at, at the local neighborhood, and, and you're around parents, and they're, they're talking about things that are antithetical to everything you believe, and you feel the pressure to remain silent. You feel the pressure not to create controversy. And you know if you do stand for something, there will be ridicule. What do you see at those moments? Do you see the grace of the gospel in your suffering or do you just see the pain and grief of suffering? And, and not to minimize the pain of persecution and ridicule and mockery and rejection and anger and hate and fear because they're all, they're all real. But Peter, Peter wants to rivet us to the gospel when we face trials, when we suffer for Christ a, and, and have a joy. That's the thing. He wants us to have joy, which is not logical, but it is real. He wants us to know that when we follow Christ and he's telling us, listen, <laughs> verse six, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Well, it, it is necessary, it is, it is necessary. Now, you're not facing trials all the time, but you are facing suffering. You, you do have moments in your life. And, and as, you, as I shared just a few weeks ago, where we are in, in the Christian faith today is, is radically different than where we were 40 years ago when I first came to faith in Christ. The way Christians are treated today is, is just 180 degrees different. We were, we were respected 40 years ago. No longer. No longer. And, and he wants us to know that, that, listen, if necessary, yeah, there, there are going to be moments when you will suffer. Don't be surprised. You will suffer if you are standing for Christ. And, and he discusses the, the nature of our trials. He tells us first that our trials are necessary if for a little while, if necessary, our trials are necessary. And then he, he tells us our trials bring grief. You have been grieved. And, and then he talks about our trials. He doesn't even just say trial. He says trials. And he goes on to say by various trials. 
So let's just, let's just get Peter's idea out there. There are unique trials waiting for us. There, there's a variety. It could be verbal abuse. It could be loss of occupation. It could be being an outcast. Many in Peter's day would be cut off from their family. This idea of inheritance that Peter is talking about is also speaking to many who came to faith in Christ were immediately disowned by their family. And whatever inheritance they had was totally cut off. I've seen that reality in India. When someone comes to faith in Christ, not a problem. Because at that, at that time, there, Jesus is actually a god that is worshipped in India. It's one of just the, the million Hindu gods. He, he's just thrown into the pile. It's when they get baptized in water that makes it clear they are followers of Christ. They are ostracized from their families. They are, they are kicked out of their families. They're kicked out onto the street. They become exiles. Elect exiles. We suffer the pain and the grief of friends who betray us. Who used to follow Christ and follow him no more. I have very dear, I had a dear friend who's a care group leader in one of the churches I was pastoring. And six years ago, came to me, told me he'd become an atheist. A man who led a care group, who, who had, a, had a stunning conversion moment, tells me I'm an atheist. Like, I'm not following this God anymore. I don't believe in him anymore. I suffered. I grieved. That is what Peter is talking about. And, and he says, but he says this, our, our trials are only for a little while. That's the nature of this. And, and, and he tells us, listen, we, we rejoice in this. We rejoice not because we have trials, but because in, because in our trials we have Christ. Peter is turning our idea and understanding of trials and suffering upside down. He he understood what it meant to, to suffer for Christ. In Acts 5, Peter is, has been preaching. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He had been thrown into prison. He gets pulled out of prison. And he, he, you know, he, he's rescued from prison by God. And he's standing before the, the council. And they are commanding him not to preach Christ anymore. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. You you're not going to tell us to stop preaching Christ. It doesn't matter. We will preach Christ. And so they're taken out and they're beaten. And it says, Peter walked away rejoicing that he could suffer for Christ. Rejoicing that he could suffer for Christ. How many of you have had that moment? <laughs> I'm, I'm suffering for Christ. This is so cool. No. <laughs> <laughs> the famous English poet William Blake 
was a man who also loved Jesus Christ. And he said on his deathbed that he was going to a country he had all his life wished to see. And he expressed his, himself uh, happy, joyful, hoping, hoping for salvation through Christ, knowing that he was secure in Christ. And he, he had a true knowledge. He had an understanding that the road to heaven was marked out by much earthly, earthly sorrow. And so, so he penned this poem. He says, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And that when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's what Peter is writing here in, in verse 6, that, that we find joy in trials because we are connected to the gospel. Here, Peter, Peter's letter is, ex, is very succinctly expressed in this poem. Joy and woe are woven fine. So, so very true. And these, these four verses help us remember that our, our pilgrim's progress, our pilgrim's progress on the, the road to the celestial city that we are walking on, is indeed at times a hard road. If necessary, for a little while, you will be grieved by various trials. But they also also see that woven together are joy and woe. Because we have a living hope. That's why we can have joy in the midst of woe. We have a living hope. We have been born again. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, you being guarded by God until Christ returns. That, that is, that's the first. We have, we have joy in trials because God has saved us. Secondly, we have joy in testing because God is proving and refining your faith. Verse 7, so that, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, parentheses, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, so that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A.M. Stibbs in his commentary says this, since faith is in God's sight so much more precious and has when genuine imperishable value, it is understandable that God should similarly use the fires of trial to discover and demonstrate where truth faith exists. So the trials of our earthly experience are not to be regarded as strange or surprising, but as providentially ordered for divine and eternal ends. You are, your faith is tested by God. These trials that you suffer, and, and, and it doesn't have to be, I mean, this is, the, First Peter is primarily, it is about suffering for the faith. But the trials that we experience outside of suffering for the faith, just suffering because we live in a fallen and broken world, uh, trials do test our faith and they reveal the genuineness of our faith. Are you who you say you are? And don't, don't be surprised. 
Because my friend who renounced Christ and became an atheist had been a Christian for more than 30 years. Professing Christian for more than 30 years. But when the trials of suffering came into his life, his faith, or lack thereof, was revealed. It is testing Testing by trials becomes the proving ground for our faith. God God finds our faith precious. God loves our faith. He finds our faith more precious than gold that is refined by fire. He he brings out the impurities of our faith, so to speak. And and like gold, he, he purifies our faith. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, said, Peter reminds Christians that God's purposes in present grief may not be fully known in a week, in a year, or even a lifetime. Indeed, some of God's purposes will not even be known when believers die and go to be with the Lord. Some will only be discovered at the day of final judgment, when the Lord reveals the secrets of all hearts and commends with special honor those who trusted him in hardship, even though they could not see the reason for it. They trusted him simply because he was their God and they knew him to be worthy of trust. It is in time when the reason for hardship cannot be seen that trust in God alone seems to become most pure and precious in his sight. Such faith he will not forget but will store up as a jewel of great value and beauty to be displayed and delighted in on the day of judgment. There is a value to our faith in God's eyes. Why is it God's plan for Christians to suffer? Because suffering functions as that crucible of refining and revealing and proving the genuineness of our faith. They, they test that genuineness. They, they reveal if we are really who we say we are. It's in that final day and the day of judgment that our faith will be seen in all its beauty or in its bankruptcy. If our faith proves real, God is thrilled. And this is, this is what he says. Listen, your faith the, the various, the, and the grief by various trials is what is going to test the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes. Your, your faith will be tested by fire that it may be found to result, and he says this, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by praise or in honor and glory? He's not talking about praise and honor and glory towards the Lord. He's talking about praise and honor and glory that you receive at the day of judgment when your faith is revealed at that time at the revelation of Christ. When Christ is revealed at that final moment, when he returns and we see him. God, God rewards our faith. God celebrates our faith. God is thrilled by our faith and and his response is to praise us, to honor us and and to help us enter into the glory of Christ that he has promised. And and obviously it all turns around where we look back to God and said, hey, listen, all this praise, honor and glory, it's really not about us, it's about you and what you've done and the gospel that you have have given us to, to transform us. 
God is thrilled to bestow because he loves you. He loves us. Then it goes on in verse 8. His testing, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so, so here is, here's the, the genuineness of your faith. You love God, having never seen him. Now, Peter writes this, having seen Jesus. But the people he is writing to, 30 years later, Probably most, if not all of them, had never seen Christ. And so he, he honors them. He said, listen, this is the genuineness of your faith. You love him when you've not seen him. You love him. You love Christ. And that's not just a, a pithy statement. That's just not, oh, yeah, yeah, I love Christ. No, no, no. You love. You demonstrate what love is towards Christ. That there is nothing else in this world that is more important to you than Christ. That you honor what he honors. You love what he loves. You obey his commands. That's what what we read in John. Jesus says in, in John's gospel that if you love me, you will obey my commands. So we we see that the the genuineness of your faith is proven in you loving him. And it is proven as though you do not now see him. There's this not now. You're not going to see him now, but, but you will see him. At the revelation of Christ, you will see him. And when you see him... You, you, you will have this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. But until then, you believe in him. You believe. Your faith is proven over time. In John 20, 25, there's a very familiar story of a man who refused to believe until he saw Jesus man named Thomas. So the disciples, so now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Oh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. D. Edmund Hebert says this in his commentary, Jesus is now spiritually present with his church. The revelation of Jesus Christ will simply be the moment he becomes visible to his church. He's been with us all along. and One day we will see him. Now the faith of Peter's readers was being rewarded with, you know, and so... Now, the faith of Peter's readers were being rewarded with scoffing, ridicule, slander, hatred, rejection, persecution, and for some, even death. 
But when Jesus returns, the reverse will dramatically happen. And God's people will receive his praise, honor, and glory for their faith in the face of trials. Trials that tested their faith to prove it was genuine. And the very same is true for us. Jesus has been with us all along. We just don't see him. Our trust, our belief in a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus makes everything in this world pale in comparison. Makes suffering, makes the pleasures, makes whatever. It just pales in comparison. Trials and tests, they will fade to the background. And the pleasures and joy of this world, are, they, they are muted in, in the face of Christ because nothing equals being lifted up by the gospel into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have been lifted up. If you've come to faith in Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you trust in him, if on that final day of judgment you will stand before God and you can say, yes, it's not not me, it's Christ. Christ has died for my sins. I have trusted in that. If If you can say that, then you have been lifted up by the gospel. If you cannot say that, then on the day of judgment, Christ will not stand in your place, but you will stand in your own place and receive the judgment of God. So if you've not come to faith in Christ, let me appeal to you this morning. Look to Christ for your salvation. Cast away your doubts. Look to him. And thirdly and finally, Peter encourages us that the joy in our outcome there's joy in our outcome because God will finish what he began. Verse 9 Let me start with verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There is that, that theme of joy. And in that joy, what is experiencing is obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That salvation is not justification, but it is, it is the, the present salvation that you're experiencing as well as the future completion of the salvation you will experience. Our, our joy rests in this, and, and we have confidence that God's promise will bring us to our final outcome where our salvation is complete in Christ at the day that either we die or he returns. We're, we're receiving the goal of our faith here, the, the salvation of our souls, the final insult, installment, so to speak, of the salvation that we received when Christ gave us living hope and we were born again. And we are confident that what God began in us, he will finish in us. Paul writes in Philippians Chapter 1, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That, that is our hope. It is our faith and it is our trust in God's faithfulness that will bring us to our heavenly outcome. Full of the possessions of God's blessings, the goal attained, salvation complete in the midst of a life where we have suffered for him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes, 
For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In fact, the book by Charles Sheldon that was written back in the 20th century, early 20th century, called In His Steps, was taken from that verse. That people would follow Christ, that would follow in the steps of Christ. And that means the example he's left us of of joy in suffering. Because if you remember in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 2, he says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And James tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my children, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that I'm quoting from the NASB because I memorized it in the NASB. So, but consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you can go back. In this you greatly rejoice. You go back to verses 3 through 5. Born again. Living hope. Inheritance. Kept in heaven for you. Guarded by God. Yeah, your faith is going to be tested. Will it be genuine? Will you remain? Will you stand firm until the end? Trials and suffering for being followers of Christ They're inevitable. They are inevitable. How we respond reveals much about our faith in God. If we, listen, if we do not have a deep and abiding trust in God and his word, we'll flee when trials come. We'll flee. Or we'll we'll duck when opportunities arise to tell others about the gospel of Christ. We'll be silent when we should speak. We will hide when we should stand. And, and, And actually, in one respect, that will increase our suffering. Listen, a lack of opposition, when you, when, you, when you do not have opposition, when you, you in a sense, are not standing for Christ, when, when you, there's a lack of opposition, I think it also says something about us. A.M. Stibb says, if, while living in a non-Christian culture, we face no opposition, we're probably too interested in fitting in and getting along. And that's what we saw in the book of Esther, if you remember. Esther and Mordecai and the exiled Jews who were living in Persia, in the capital city of Susa, they they fit in. There was no opposition at first. They were just a part of the culture. We don't want to fit in. We don't want to be contentious. But we, want to, we don't want to fit in. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, he is speaking, if I can get there, Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
And then he says this. And here's Peter's, here's Peter's whole point. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you're, if you're astute, you've noticed something about these first nine verses in 1 Peter. There's not one imperative. There's not one command. Not one. Why? Because Peter's goal is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, even as he describes the experience of trials that we will go through. All he wants to do is fix our eyes on Christ and all that he has promised, the living hope, the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven by God for us, guarded by God until Christ returns. Listen, in the coming weeks, Peter is going to give us lots of imperatives. He's going to talk to us about holiness, living holy lives in a world that is difficult, that is hostile. But he first wants to ensure that we have set our affections on the one who has such great love and affection for us. Father, thank you that you have set your affection on us. That in the midst of a hostile world, we, we don't look first at our suffering. We look first at your son who brings us joy in the midst of trials. May, may, you, may you help us, Lord. Please help us to rejoice in the midst of suffering for following after you. And Lord, may our Faith prove genuine for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.